I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season six, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada within about 12 months. So she was scared, something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. It's not an exaggeration to call it one of the most famous unsolved murders in Canadian history. Honey and Barry Sherman were found dead in their North York mansion on December 13th, 2017. Toronto police say the investigation is still very much open and active, with detectives following up leads in five different countries. Not only is the case of the Barry and Honey Sherman murders still open, reporters as well as the police are still on the story, still fighting for access to documents in court, still figuring out exactly what went wrong in the days and the weeks after the murders that left the case so cold for the past few years. The case may be cold, but not frozen. See, every time the ice starts to form, something mysterious happens. Police release a grainy video of a potential suspect or we get word that the investigation has moved overseas, or someone who enters the Sherman house as it's about to be demolished, realizes that this is not how a house about to be demolished should look. And all over again, we wonder, will we ever know what really happened to Barry and Honey Sherman? Who killed them and why? And why that person or persons have been able to evade justice for five years? Or will the ice eventually form and leave this case frozen in time as a famous whodunit? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Kevin Donovan is the chief investigative reporter at the Toronto Star. He has been reporting on the Sherman murders since they happened. He's written a book about them called The Billionaire Murders, and now a new podcast, also called The Billionaire Murders, looks into what we know and what we're about to find out. Hey, Kevin. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well. I want to start by asking you, and we've talked about the Sherman case before, But this is a huge, in-depth, narrative project that you're doing with the new podcast. Why is this story so compelling to be worth uh, that kind of in-depth exploration? Why are these particular murders so fascinating? I think for a number of reasons. First of all, it is a whodunit uh, for a variety of reasons. This uh, remains uh, unsolved uh, by the Toronto police, uh, the biggest police force in Canada. Related to that... The police uh, out of the gate made a lot of serious mistakes. And my last podcast looked at a, at a series of mistakes in an in a unknown case. And this one, I wanted to examine problems in a, in a big city murder and finding very similar 
mistakes. And I think to knit it together in a narrative will help people understand problems we have in our, our uh, criminal investigation system and hopefully push the needle to making them a bit better. And just briefly as we start, who were the Shermans? Why were they so notable? Honey and Barry Sherman were among the most uh, wealthy people in Canada, Jewish philanthropists and, and philanthropists uh, in, in non-Jewish causes as well. Barry founded Apotex in the early 1970s, a generic uh, pharmaceutical company. Most people in Canada, if they've ever had any pharmaceutical products, probably ended up getting generics because government love when and when uh, those are doled out instead of the more higher cost uh, brand name pharmaceuticals. They uh, were uh, interesting people, uh, intriguing. I've, through their uh, my investigation, come to be quite uh, fond of things they did, but they were odd ducks for sure. How so? Well, they both drove really old cars, but they were billionaires. Uh, Honey had a pair of uh, workout shorts that she uh, darned herself for 20 years because why buy a new pair of shorts? <laughs> but they money was so much a part of their life and it colored, I think, everything that they did. Uh, Barry often said he liked to do two things, make money and give it away, enter four children into this and other relatives who all enjoyed the fruits of what they called the Bank of Barry. Hmm. And that caused a lot of stress. It's interesting. I think all of us think that money solves all the problems. But from my review of the Sherman's uh, lives, uh, it can actually make much bigger problems. In a moment, we'll get into, you know, the circumstances of their deaths and the early parts of the investigation that you touched on and that you're touching on right now in the podcast. But you mentioned this case is still unsolved. It's been more than five years. What is the status of the case right now? What are the police doing kind of as we're speaking? Well, as we're speaking, there's one uh, lone detective who is working on a series of requests for international search warrants. Uh, five different countries, they won't say which ones, have information that the police believe will help them prove a case against an individual or individuals. The police are not actively going out talking to people. They haven't interviewed a new person for a couple of years. They are going back to some sources uh, uh, within the family who have some information, and they're just moving forward on it. It seems for me, I mean, I've been at this for five years, moving with glacial pace. Will it be solved one day? Uh, I think so, but it's going to take, I think, somebody uh, coming in out of the cold and saying, I've got information. Aside from the identity of the killer or killers, what are the other huge questions uh, that an investigation would still be trying to answer? Like, what's in the way of making progress on this? Well, the, the Sherman's bodies, uh, when discovered for reasons that I still don't completely understand, it led police uh, and the pathologists to think that it was a, a, a double suicide. And one of the big questions for me is, 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 is really, how could you make such a big mistake, which colored the investigation for six weeks? The other question, and it goes back to money, is the police have said during a process in court that I've been involved in where I've been asking detective questions every six weeks about his investigation. He's been very specific that the will, the estate of Barry and Honey Sherman, who got what and who didn't get what, is a part. It's embedded in the investigation. And that's where I'm looking because the police have had ample opportunity to say, no, 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 it's nothing to do with, with Barry's estate. They've said it has something to do with Barry's estate. And that leads me down a whole bunch of different roads, which I'm still exploring. And, and the podcast will certainly, in the later episodes, uh, really target that. 
That would seem to narrow uh, the list of suspects substantially. It, it does, except you have to remember a will gives money to people, in this case, the four children equally. There's four kids and they split, they're going to split uh, billions of dollars, uh, quarter, 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 and quarter. There's also who didn't get money and right. that uh, person or persons could have a motive as well. Well, let's start with um, the first episode of the podcast because it seems like an interesting place to start and you kind of touched on it. It's called The Man on the Inside. Uh, who is the man on the inside? Uh, what did he discover? Why is he important? The man on the inside is a, and calls himself an urbex man. He's an urban explorer. Uh, people in our uh, community, you might uh, know one and you, and you don't know it. They like to go into abandoned houses and buildings just before demolition and take videos and pictures. They take nothing else away. This particular one is a, a person who uh, obviously interviewed. He uh, goes into the Sherman home just two days before it's it's knocked down. It's knocked down two uh, years after the, uh, the the murders took place. And he goes in and he finds a lot of interesting things that he thinks are evidence. I've seen his videos. His videos show that the house was still filled with all sorts of uh, memorabilia, pictures, uh, furniture, and all that went down with the uh, demolition hammers. Huh. But what he also notices is stuff that, in his words, looks like things that should have been in the Toronto Police Service uh, evidence locker that were just left there. And that gave me a bird's eye view, because of course I've never been in the Sherman's home, a bird's eye view of mistakes uh, that were made, uh, I think probably both by the police and by the private investigation team. They just didn't do what we expect of uh, investigators in this day and age. Maybe this is where we can get into a little depth. So take me back to the day that their bodies were discovered. You know, the one mistake you've already mentioned is the misdiagnosis of uh, a double suicide. But but when you refer to the mistakes in the days afterwards, like, what are you talking about? Kind of walk me through it. Well, in the, the days after, uh, the police are asking questions based on this theory of double suicide or, or murder-suicide. And they are not asking people who could have done this. They're saying, was there a health issue? Was, was there cancer? Something like that. So that sent them down a road. Now, the lead investigator on the case, she's no longer attached to the case. She doesn't even go to the crime scene for four days. There's also something that I, I deal with uh, in one of the episodes that's I, I can't fault the Toronto police for, but I do fault the Ontario government. The attorney general's ministry got into a deal with the Sherman lawyers, which is the strangest deal that I've ever heard of. This is a homicide investigation. You know, we watch TV shows, the police go in, they get a warrant, they look at stuff. Mm -hmm. Police were not allowed to look at Barry Sherman's laptop, his, his desk computer, his uh, Blackberry, or anything in his office for more than a month because the Sherman's lawyers asserted privilege and the attorney general's ministry said, that's fine. Uh, and so it was actually up to the Sherman lawyers to decide what the police eventually saw. Police still haven't seen everything. I I've actually seen things that I don't think the police have seen. That sounds, you know, to a lay person, mind-blowing that that could happen in not only just a murder investigation, but uh, an investigation into uh, two incredibly wealthy philanthropists that were known all over the country. It, it shocked me that there was this actual deal. And, and, and the deal, as I said, just allows the Sherman lawyers to decide what the police get to see. That was sealed from the public for a couple of years. Huh. And I think it was sealed 
from embarrassment of the attorney general that they made this this deal. And so the point of doing this podcast is, of course, the, the Sherman murders are the main focus of it, but it's everything that happens around these complicated cases that I want to expose. I mean, as you know, that's what we're in the business of doing, trying to show problems so that in the future, one hopes uh, in, in all types of investigations, uh, there'll be fewer of these mistakes. When you say that uh, the urban explorer who was in the house before it was demolished saw things that were evidence that had been left around, can you give me like some concrete examples? What are we talking about? Uh, things like uh, uh, diaries, uh, uh, who they were going to see just a few days before, plans for getting together uh, with people right after, a lot of paperwork. And, and, and Barry and Honey, particularly Barry, was a... I think it would be fair to say it was messy. He had stuff everywhere. And so the Urban Explorer's video shows the desk. And I would expect that desk to have been, well, removed for starters and given away to charity, but at least empty of all this paperwork, diaries, plans, nothing. Now, let's assume the police photographed it, but I think they should have had the originals with them. You cover a lot of investigative cases, and sometimes those are murders. Like, I'm not asking a rhetorical question here, but how unusual is it to just see the evidence lying around? What I've done is is, is gone to uh, you know retired homicide and investigators, not just in Toronto but elsewhere, and I've asked them, and they say that they've never heard of anything like this. You're supposed to seize everything. There's a process. Uh, there's lots of person power at the Toronto Police to do this. And another example is. The police didn't take uh, what's called exclusionary DNA and fingerprints from people who would naturally have been near the Shermans, personal trainers, friends, family. They didn't take that for nine months. And that shows me that they were not as serious about this case as they as they led all of us in the media to believe. Right. And, and the importance of that is you're in a crime scene. They've, they've been murdered in this house. So you want to know who was in the house for the for natural reasons, a personal trainer that morning is a good reason to be in the house. And and this woman, you'll hear from her in the podcast, she describes, you know, she's touching the weights, she's touching their you know bodies, helping them do various movements. And they don't show up for nine months to ask for her fingerprints. Hmm. Uh, people who were in the Sherman's car, Honey loved to go away on trips with her girlfriends. And uh, one of the neat things about Honey uh, is that although she's a billionaire, she drove this old car. They all pooled money for snacks on the road. Not your typical billionaire, but the the people who were with her in the car and sharing driving duties just before the murders, they ne- have never been fingerprinted. And yet I know the police uh, have explored and are exploring a theory that somebody got into Honey's car at uh, Baby Village Mall uh, the night she's murdered. And I've seen pictures of the police examining her steering wheel, obviously taking fingerprints. Shouldn't they have taken her friend's fingerprints to make sure that they're not going to end up looking for them as the killers? It's just, it's a cascade of mistakes. Listen, all I do is read crime novels and I feel like I know that already. Uh, of course you do. And that's the, the thing is that, you know, police, when I've questioned them on this, they they take the position of, well, we know how it's done. But the other thing that I've learned, which was shocking to me in businesses these days, uh, there's processes for making sure that mistakes don't happen again. The Toronto Police has no program like that. They have no way to audit an investigation. Huh. And again, 
I've tried very hard to find examples of investigative steps they've taken that were great, and I haven't found any. Just another one to I'm, I'm sound like I'm piling on, but the, you know, a year ago, we all saw the picture of the walking man that the police believe is a killer or one of the killers. Right. Police don't release that image for four years, and they release it asking the public, hey, do you know this guy? Yeah. How about do that a month after the investigation starts? It's been more than five years. You've been on this investigation um, the whole time. I guess I'm wondering is how is the flow of information after all this time? I know there was a ton of reporting at first. You've stayed on it. There were tips back then. Are you still getting tips now and where are they leading you? I continue to get tips. I, I got one this morning that I've got to have a phone call with a person who used to work at Aptex who wants to tell me something. I, I check them all out. The analogy I have used is that uh, firefighters, uh, an alarm goes off, you have to check out the fire. Usually there's not a fire. Usually the tips are are, are crazy. One of my episodes deals with the, the Clinton conspiracy theory that the Clintons were somehow involved in this. That one is pretty easy to dismiss. But what I'm trying to do is gather all the information. And I suspect the police are doing the same thing. I think you have to listen to everybody and and see where it goes because, you know, you never know. I know you don't want to give away the upcoming episodes of the podcast just yet, but what are listeners, especially those who are really interested in this case and who have been following your reporting in The Star, what are they going to learn that they maybe haven't learned uh, from your reporting up to this point? Well, for starters, they'll hear the voices of people that I've interviewed, you know, because there's, as you well know, a little bit more space uh, uh, on the airwaves than in, in, a, in a daily newspaper. You'll hear more context uh, and, and you know, certainly more, more theories from people of what they think happened. My book came out in 2019, and I know so much more now. Recently, I've seen the crime scene photos, so there'll be an episode where I, I really, you know, it's not for the squeamish, but I'll really dig into what the actual scene was. And I think more importantly, the movements of the Shermans just before and the movements of other people just after the murders. So it's that sort of information where, I mean, I'm, I'm developing new information all the time. And so once they get through the eight episodes of the podcast and there are four behind the scenes episodes, they'll have, a, I think, a quite a, a rich understanding of, of literally everything I know. Last question is, what's going to happen now? You know, you mentioned right off the top that you think eventually this case will get solved. What do you expect to see in the coming months or given the timeline of this, maybe years? Well, I'm always expecting an email alert from the Toronto Police Service, a press conference update coming from on the Sherman case uh, that hasn't happened yet. I'll be back in court in three months uh, questioning the detective again. And, and what I'm hoping to find out is what's going on in these five countries that the police uh, are pursuing information in. I, I think that's the key thing. That That's the only investigative avenue the police have right now. And it's it's I think it's financial information. I speculate it's a, that they believe that somebody was was paid either in uh, in money or in some sort of, a, you know, let's say property, something like that. The person who was involved in, in the killings. So that's that's what I'm targeting in right now, because from where I've I'm looking, there's nothing else that the police are focusing on in this case, except that international attempt uh, at gathering new information. Kevin, thanks for this. Thanks for your work on uh, this investigation and looking forward to listening to the rest of the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Kevin Donovan, 
the chief investigative reporter at the Toronto Star, and the host of The Billionaire Murders, which you can find, as you well know, wherever you get your podcasts. That was The Big Story, also available wherever you get podcasts, and of course, at thebigstorypodcast.ca. Talk to us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. Call us, leave a voicemail, 416-935-5935. Or email us, hello at TheBigStoryPodcast.ca. If you want to listen to this podcast on a smart speaker, you can just ask it to play The Big Story Podcast. If you want to listen to this podcast without advertising, you can subscribe for a bargain price by going to Apple Podcasts and selecting The Big Story Plus. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Have a great weekend. We've got something extra in store for you tomorrow, and then we'll talk Monday. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together, and we were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. <laughs>